Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Capital Unbound, the Cato Institute Summit on Financial Regulation. Uh, I'm Mark Calabri, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, and will be serving as our Master of Ceremony to, at today's summit. Uh, I know many of you are familiar with the Cato Institute. You may not be as familiar with our newly launched Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. The purpose of our new center is to reveal the shortcomings of our current monetary and financial systems. Of course, revealing the fate or flaws of the status quo is not enough. Our center is also dedicated to identifying, studying, and promoting alternatives more conducive to a stable and flourishing free society. Today's summit fits squarely in that agenda. Like many areas of our financial system, our capital markets are characterized by extensive barriers to entry that protect incumbents uh, and with offering little protection to investors or the broader economy. Who gets capital on what terms can determine who in our society succeeds and who does not? Unfortunately, the federal reaction to the financial crisis has been the double down on many of the distortions that drove the crisis. For instance, despite residential mortgages playing a central role in the crisis, policymakers in Washington have loaded ever more mortgage risk uh, onto the backs of the taxpayer. I know that our first speaker is going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, and as unbelievable as it sounds, Washington is again calling for reducing underwriting standards and pushing home ownership as a get-rich-quick scheme for everybody. Uh, I thought it would at least be a few more years before Washington went down that path again. Uh, perhaps it should not come surprise uh, because of failed regulators in Washington only gained more discretionary power after the crisis. Uh, no one was really held accountable on the regulatory front. Uh, a core mission of the center is to bring a greater accountability to our regulatory system. We hope to end the pattern of where regulatory failure is rewarded with a book tour and endless consulting fees. Uh, a number of my colleagues from the Center for Monetary Financial Alternatives are on today's agenda. Uh, a number are also here in the audience. I'll, I'll mention, too, at least Jim Dorn, Lydia Mashburn, who were very instrumental in making today happen. Uh, if you run into them in the hallways, please ask them about the center. I know they love to talk about it. We'll be happy to share about uh, everything we're working on. Uh, I also want to thank uh, the handful of supporters who helped make our center a reality uh, and, of course, thank the Donald Smith Family Foundation for making today's summit possible. Um, I can think of little, I can think of no one better suited to open our conference than my good friend Josh Rosner. Josh is managing director of Graham Fisher and Company and co author with Gretchen Morgenstern of Reckless Endangerment How Outsized Ambition, Greed, and Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon. Reckless Endangerment is one of the best accounts of the financial crisis, marrying the best in financial analysis and journalism. For the few of you who haven't read it, we will have complimentary copies out in the hallway, and I know that Josh will be happy to sign a few. Uh, I first got to know Josh when he just showed up at my office one day, I think back in 2003, uh, when I was still on the staff of the banking committee. He came by to raise questions about financial disclosures at Ginnie Mae and FHA, as, as, as well as a number of other practices in the mortgage market. One of the things one often hears is that nobody saw the crisis coming, and it was a big surprise. And while, of course, no one could have gotten every detail correct, I can personally attest that Josh uh, was raising alarm bells early and often. Uh, at, least, at least at my door, if no one else's. Uh, he continues to be one of the most forceful and insightful voices on financial markets. Even on the few occasions when I disagree with him, I always learn something, and I have to force to clarify my own thinking. So with that experience, I'm certain that we'll all learn a lot from Josh this morning. He's mostly going to talk about the mortgage markets, but I do want to announce he was recently uh, um, added to the advisory board for ITBIT Trust, which is one of the first Bitcoin uh, licenses here in, in, in New York. Uh, and so I'm sure during the Q&A period, he'd be happy to talk about some of his views on Bitcoin and blockchain, which are very extensive. Uh, but I'm going to turn over the podium now for Josh to talk about the mortgage market.
Good morning. Um, I've got a lot to go through, so we're going to try and go through it really quickly. Um, hopefully the clock won't run out too quickly. Um, I think it's important right now as we're rethinking what the shape of the uh, mortgage finance system is, we need to think about what the purpose of housing is, not just the shape of mortgage finance, how we can go forward. Um, Washington seems to be back to its old games of uh, seeking to uh, deliver um, benefits to those who are rent-seeking in the space. There's a mortgage industrial complex which has remained just as powerful, just as strong as it was before the crisis. Um, so I think as we're talking about GSE reform, we should start by saying, to the degree that anyone believes that there needs to be a secondary mortgage market, which is a market to make sure that there's liquidity provided so that banks and other lenders can make mortgages in bad times as well as good, uh, to the degree that, that we think that there should be a secondary mortgage market, I think we should think about uh, what's going on in current proposals, which are mostly scrap the GSEs, create a new platform, hand it to the big banks so that they've got a bigger toehold and you've commingled the primary and secondary market. Um, there's nothing specifically wrong with the existence of entities whose purpose is to support liquidity in the secondary mortgage market. I think it's actually uh, been proven uh, that there's a real value there. We've long known how to properly regulate them, but we didn't do so in uh, the 1992 Act. Um, we didn't do so in the uh, 2005 Act uh, or attempts. Um, and really it comes down to um, portfolios, guarantee fees, what they charge for the insurance, um, and, uh, and capital. And the fact is that these were pro-cyclical companies because they didn't have adequate capital. They had large portfolios where they could have just been pass-throughs to the private market of bundled mortgages. Um, and we can see this in the prior failures of the companies. Um, Fannie historically uh, did have large portfolios. Freddie historically didn't. Fannie's gotten in trouble on that in the past. Freddie never did. Um, so in 1989, as they started thinking about how to re-regulate the enterprises, everyone understood safety and soundness. In times of stress, it's unclear that the affordable housing mission and um, safety and soundness were compatible. We needed to make safety and soundness primary. Um, and that never happened. And that really was the beginning of this crisis. Um, the same thing was uh, true in, uh, in 92. Rather than creating a world-class regulatory regime, it created a neutered safety and soundness standard with a pr weak primary regulator. They didn't have control over capital. The GSE mortgage securities received a lower relative risk weighting than private mortgages. The regulator had no explicit authority over the enterprise leverage or their portfolio growth, which, again, when they start investing in assets that they're holding on their balance sheet, they're taking on risk. And when they go outside of their core business and they start investing in Alt-A and subprime and other private label securities, they become pro-cyclical rather than what they were intended to be, just counter-cyclical. So in 2008, after the crisis was already upon us, Congress finally got around to passing legislation that really solved most of these problems. Um, you've got a, a regulator that now has authority over capital, authority over the proper pricing of the guarantee fees. You've got congressionally mandated winding down of the portfolios, recognizing that that was a major problem. And unfortunately, we still have uh, affordable housing goals, but those goals are not supposed to be uh, funded until the enterprises are adequately capitalized. Unfortunately, today, they have less capital than they did going into the crisis because Treasury has decided to sweep all of the profits 
all of the income, I should say, of the enterprises into treasury coffers to make sure that they are permanently on the government dole. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the, there's a false meme in Washington where a lot of the Democrats suggest that it was private markets, a lot of the Republicans suggest that it was uh, government, um, and the answer is it was both and, not either or. Uh, they seasoned the markets, there's no question. Fannie and Freddie seasoned the markets. They got investors comfortable with lower underwriting standards, reduced down payments, um, to some degree automated underwriting, automated valuation, appraisal processes. Um, and the private market ultimately grabbed, grabbed onto that and ran with that ball as well until such time as the GSE started feeling their market share erode and then they jumped in and started buying those private label securities for their portfolio and reducing their credit standards further. But I would say that one of the key issues, one of the key things that drove the crisis was in 1994, um, then President Clinton created the National Partners in Home Ownership, which included HUD, the FDIC, Fannie Freddie, Mortgage Bankers, American Institute of Architects, America's Community Bankers, Department of Treasury, et cetera. And the goal was to increase home ownership rates to all-time records by the end of the millennium, and to do so by reducing down payment requirements, underwriting standards, and innovate novel mortgage products. And nowhere did safety and soundness get mentioned in that strategy. Um, again, by 1998, these risks were understood, including the risks of what Clinton had done, um, in an internal memo from Secretary of Treasury Rubin uh, in the White House, he said, increasing lending to the most at-risk borrowers, lowering down payment requirements is likely to reduce savings among low-income people who would like to be homeowners. We may not want to encourage poor people, especially those who can't save to purchase their homes. In an economic downturn, these homes may be more vulnerable and, like, and, and may be likely to lose their homes. And it's not clear that home ownership causes the effects attributed to homeowners. So I think that was actually correct, insightful, and unfortunately, they ignored it and kept going. Um, in 2001, the banks were able to convince the Fed and Basel Committee that their similarly rated mortgage-backed securities should get the same risk weighting as the GSEs. They got that successfully, and it was off to the races. So let's go through now the important, why did Fannie and Freddie fail? Um, it really comes down to a small handful of things, all of which now, through law, can be addressed, but that's not where we are. So you've got the use of their portfolios to invest in assets that were outside of their core activities. You've got expanding their credit underwriting standards without proper oversight. You've got the G fees they charge, the insurance fees that they charge to uh, lenders who are selling their mortgages to them, um, were underpriced. They priced them on volume rather than on the underlying credit risk. And the regulator didn't have adequate authority to make sure there was a, a proper amount of capital. Um, the enterprises uh, at points were levered uh, over 80 to 1. Um, by some estimates, including you know, some of the off-balance sheet, it's 100 to 1. Um, and there was no authority to change the capital requirements. So I think it's important as we start looking at what to do that we ask a handful of questions. Is it an improvement? Does it protect the public? Does it improve market discipline? Does it reduce systemic risk posed by central players? Does it create a strong divide between the utility-like function of the secondary mortgage market and, pri and the primary mortgage origination market? 
And the answer to every proposal that we've seen so far on Capitol Hill is no. Uh, in fact, what you're largely doing is you're giving the entire industry to the primary market participants, which is just going to create that same pro-cyclicality that we had with private capital fleeing at the first hint of crisis. So reality, in my mind, is GSEs in and out of conservatorship, this is reality, are among the largest companies in the world. Okay? We're talking over $5 trillion of assets and liabilities. The leading bills uh, that we've seen proffered really recreate a very dangerous system in which the line between the primary and secondary mortgage markets um, gets blurred, and that creates excess liquidity in good times and a withdrawal of liquidity in bad times. And we once again have legislators seeking to deliver public subsidies through shareholder-owned and private companies without appropriate regulation or specific on-balance sheet uh, funding. The same mortgage industrial complex that captured Washington before is really attempting to do it again, and their approaches are dangerous. They create new systemic risks and really support several false myths. Now, the way I like to think about what we've seen and what we're seeing in the proposals is very simple. I was uh, driving down Lexington one night when I pulled up to the stoplight and someone hit the back of my car, and I thought, aha, GSE reform. Um, and I got out of the car and I realized that it was just, you know, it was a fender bender. It wasn't terrible. Uh, and then I thought, what are the real options here? So the most economic option is I get the guy's insurance, I go to the repair shop, I have my car fixed. That seems to be the most intelligent and economically rational option. The second is leave the car unrepaired, drive around like that, understand that the value of it's going to be less when I sell it, and if it rusts out where it was hit, it's going to become even worth less. Not as rational an economic outcome, but okay. The third is, even though it's mechanically sound and it still drives and the damage is just cosmetic, I could junk the car. Just bring it to the junkyard, abandon it. Now, that obviously is not a very economic choice. I'd have the downtime from saving up for the next car, um, and it would be a waste of a, of, of a useful asset. Um, what we've seen out of Washington is a fourth option, which is incomprehensible. And that's build me a new auto assembly plant to make me a new car. Okay? Makes absolutely no sense, but such is the wisdom of Washington. So false myth number one is private capital can replace the GSEs. Well, I agree that this is a noble cause. The question is, how do you get private capital? To replace the GSEs and attract enough private capital to, the, to ensure the top 10% of a future market roughly the size of their books is about $500 billion in capital that you'd have to attract. The private mortgage industry, uh, private mortgage insurance industry, uh, which failed during the crisis and was another part of the reason the GSEs ran into problems, um, only has about $13 billion of ca total capital. So clearly that's not sufficient. Um, the private label securitization market, in other words, the banks uh, lending, pooling, packaging, and securitizing on their own without any wraps, remains dormant, completely dormant since the crisis, 2.5% of all, uh, of all uh, securitizations are private label now. Um, and then the seizure of Fannie and Freddie, uh, while there are still shareholders, while we didn't um, nationalize them, I think sends another very dangerous message to private capital, which is the government can change the rules of contract at any point that they want. 
And so I think that also becomes a disincentive for capital formation. So number two is we need more competition. And that's one of the ones we constantly hear. Well, you've got Fannie and Freddie. They're a duopoly. If you merge them together, you've got a monopoly. I would argue that that is sort of a, a false meme. As we all know, competition exists where markets set prices. Okay? Competition only exists where market sets prices. Where industry players are setting prices, it's not a competitive market in the first place. Fannie and Freddie write insurance, and they've never had to compete on price. They did during that one period because they were in competition for market share, but that was, again, because they were poorly overseen from a safety and soundness perspective. But I would say, yes, they're the only secondary market firms, but at the end of the day, there are other sources of long-term mortgage funding, bank balance sheets, federal government programs, private label securitization. And there is nothing that says that the only way that you can get a mortgage is if Fannie and Freddie exist. If a bank wants to make the loan, the bank can make the loan. They don't need to sell it to Fannie and Freddie. And by the way, if they choose... They could pull them, package them, securitize them themselves. So that whole argument is sort of, uh, is sort of uh, um, false. Importantly, I think if we were to strike a proper balance in the secondary mortgage market, I think it would be important to recognize that really they were intended to provide a, a, a useful utility, okay? a public utility so that in bad times, mortgage liquidity doesn't completely evaporate. They were able to provide liquidity to the primary market. And so if you think about that, that's a utility function. That's not terribly different than electricity, water, gas, sewer utilities. And so what I think that you want to do is you want to make sure that the number of competing firms doesn't make economic outcomes less efficient, right? If you bring excess liquidity, you drive outcomes downward. If you bring adequate liquidity, that creates proper outcomes. And so I think we should be looking at the recreation of the secondary market as a utility. Um, HERA, which is the legislation passed in 2008, really gave the authority to the regulators to do most of the things that, that, that are needed, all of, really all of the things. Um, they can set capital. They can establish receivership process if they fail. They can limit the size of the retained portfolios by anchoring them to well-understood public purpose. And I think it's important to think, what do you have to do from here? Well, you've got to let them build capital, because right now they're more vulnerable to the public than they've ever been, and you're preventing private capital formation. Um, if you were to say the GSE should have a minimum of 4% capital, uh, and I say you know, 3 4% capital is a reasonable number, it's actually a very good number, then there's very little risk to the public, again. If they don't have portfolios, there's even less risk to the public. So I would propose that you regulate them like an electric utility, the Public Utility Commission, rate of return cap. Anything above that earned rate of return gets plowed back into capital. You end up with companies that really don't have a need for government backstops, government support, function as private companies, don't have the distortion of the excess liquidity of combining the secondary and the primary market, and like if you live in New York, Con Ed, we may not love them, they function, they're safe, they're sound, they're overcapitalized, and when you go home and you turn on the lights, the lights go on. So uh, there's a lot more detail in terms of what, should, what the GSEs should be holding capital against. Historically, it was really against the companies. It should be against the mortgage-backed securities they issue. 
uh, we could talk about that as well. Um, Washington wants everyone to believe that only Congress can fix the GSEs, and that's not true. The regulator has the authority to set capital, to find uh, the proper pricing or oversee the proper pricing of the guarantees, limit the portfolios, which was defined by Congress. Um, and so really, we are mostly there. What we did in the 2008 Act was everything that we didn't do prior to the crisis, but it was too late. So we threw them into conservatorship, and it's a false conservatorship today. Mark can talk about that further. I'm sure many of you have seen the paper he co-authored with Mike Criminger, which I think does an exceptional job of, of highlighting the problems with the process. Um, at which point, legislation becomes easier. Um, they should ensure that the GSE's regulator places safety and soundness as primary, require minimum capital standards of 35 to 4%, so they never expose taxpayers to risk again, replace the current regulatory oversight with a public utility commission responsible for determining allowable rates of return. Any income, as I said, above that minimum capital and rate of return would go to enhanced capital. With capped rates of return, the GSEs would not have the deep pockets with which to lobby, um, which was, again, one of, the, one of the problems. And if you use stringent methods to price the guarantees separate from the GSEs and from political influence, you're further enhancing safety and soundness. After that, you could sever the government's sponsorship to end the provisioning of an implied government guarantee um, and ensure the GSEs can function in a countercyclical environment. Okay? What I would suggest is, after that point, they should be deemed systemically important financial institutions. We should eliminate the presidential appointment to the boards, which only increases the political influence. Um, and once you've done that, then the Financial Stability Oversight Council would be in a position to price what I would say is an explicit guarantee. Now, the industry who's lobbying to replace the GSEs want a broad guarantee. They really want a guarantee on all mortgage-backed securities on a catastrophic basis. They're claiming there's first loss ahead of it, but that first loss can be waived in times of crisis, so as far as I'm concerned, it's not first loss. If you were to say we will leave a purely catastrophic risk insurance in place with Fannie and Freddie and charge them for it, and charge the market rates for it, okay? and the FSOC could determine that rate on an annual basis, you've essentially created a very narrow catastrophic guarantee behind companies that have extraordinarily high levels of capital, no portfolios, and put the risk back into the market as intended. So I think it's, it's interesting that while none of this is being discussed in Washington, um, obviously Hank Paulson recognized this when he said, I'm skeptical that the breakup and privatized option will prove to be a robust or even viable model of any substantial scale without some sort of government support or protection. It's difficult to envision a sound, practical, private sector mortgage insurance business of any size that doesn't require large amounts of capital and consequently generates only a modest return on capital. Now, that sounds like a utility to me. Ben Bernanke pointed out a public utility model offers one possibility for incorpor incorporating private ownership. In such a model, the GSEs remain a corporation with shareholders, but is overseen by a public board. Beyond simply monitoring safety and soundness, the regulator would also establish pricing and other rules consistent with a promised rate of return to shareholders. That would put Fannie and Freddie and the secondary mortgage market back where it was intended to be, which is a utility, and really investable, able to attract private capital as what we used to refer to as granny stocks, dividend growth companies rather than growth companies. 
And I think that's the model that we really should be considering. Unfortunately, the mortgage industrial complex has captured the minds of Washington once again, and rent-seeking behavior is there again. And if you read Reckless Endangerment, we are back to the days of outside uh, ambition, greed, and corruption. So with that, I'd love to uh, open it up for questions. Uh, yes. Josh, if we can go a little bit more radically in one direction, what if you and I were to become infidels from the old-time religion that home ownership and mortgage markets are so vital? We have uh, about 64% home ownership rate in this country, about 36% renters. What if it reversed? What if two-thirds were renters, one-third? Uh, and then, then, for example, labor markets would be freed and so on. We all hate landlords, I know. But what if it became a matter of indifference as to whether people rent or own? Would that, what if you felt that way? Would you alter, I, your, I do, I would you alter feel, your findings then? I, I do feel that way. Okay? I don't think that we should be picking or choosing for individuals either way. Okay? And yes, clearly... We have, as a as a as a country, chosen to subsidize uh, home ownership. I would argue, by the way, and that's an important point in another way, that any real discussion, not only of GSE reform but housing finance reform, should be outside of just Senate Banking and House Financial Services. It needs to extend to other committees, taxation, because you're right. The mortgage interest deduction is a perversion. It incents people to take on debt, to buy more home than they can afford. If we're going to incent home ownership, and I think that's a broader discussion, I happen to agree with you. However, if we are going to do that, I think it should be with the recognition that there are families who can't afford to have equity portfolios, um, and the home is the way that they are able to save. And so maybe we should incent the pay down of principal if we're going to subsidize at all. But that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're talking about. I, by the way, happen to be a renter uh, because I live in New York, and it's a put option. Okay, I've got a great, anyway, but <laughs> irrelevant. But, but I do think that um, whether you are going to incent it or not, what we're talking about is nothing more than a utility so that those who have made their own personal decision in their family's best interest or their best interest has the option of liquidity in bad times where the banks would otherwise pull the liquidity from the market. That's all we're talking about. I'm uh, Hugh McCullough, formerly from Ohio State recently. Um, I'd like to uh, take issue with your myth number one or endorse your myth number one that uh, I think private capital markets can easily replace the GSEs. Uh, the, uh, any top 20 bank holding company has the know-how to set up a mortgage intermediary that matches maturities and raises capital with bonds or places uh, securities with uh, pension funds and so forth. Um, how, and how, how have they done that re in, since the crisis? How successful have they been? Well, Fannie and Freddie greatly eclipsed right after the, I mean, they're coming back, but they were on the way out for a few years at the first, at the initial, at the early part of the crisis. Um, but my point the, is, if you, uh, unfortunately, they didn't go under altogether. Where is, what happens to private capital in crisis? Well, we've got a, a Wall Street right down the street here that can raise trillions of dollars in capital, so if, as long as there's profits but it, there. But, but it hasn't. That's the point. <clears throat> well, it why hasn't. should it? If you, if you can't compete with the GSE that has Hold a government, government guarantee, and Freddie, you have to get rid of the government guarantee. Let's, let's take let's, that myth on. Okay. Fannie and Freddie, anyone know what the average FICO score is right now? Six, you said 730, didn't you? It's about 750. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's plenty of room for the private market to fund 
a large swath of borrowers that they're not funding. So private capital can be attracted where there's clarity of contract, clarity of rules, and frankly, Fannie and Freddie, if the government said tomorrow we're going to create it in this model, utility, lower cap rate of return, not competing with the primary market, because I agree with you that was a key problem, but not competing with the private market, and we're going to recap them to 3 or 4%, and they announced that this was the plan. You and I both know that the rest of the about $250 billion of capital that the GSEs would need, that it would take them about seven years to get to on their own, would come from private markets almost overnight. But nonetheless, private label securitization market is dead. The banks aren't doing lending except to really prime credits, mostly jumbo, and so anything under 750, where is the private market? Which only demonstrates, and look again at what the private mortgage insurers have been able to raise in the past uh, seven years. Nothing. $15 billion of capital behind you know, books that are uh, still 18 to 1. Doesn't make sense. Hi, Josh. My turn? Hey, Dan. Hey. Um, so you have me, obviously, at the need for... for uh, government-backed entity in order to foster capital formation and liquidity in the mortgage market. You have me on the need to supervise that entity. You have me on the analogy with a public utility until you get to the point of pricing the explicit guarantee. The difference, of course, between all other public utilities and this one is that the taxpayer is going to offer, under your model, an explicit guarantee. I don't see water companies or uh, you know, electric companies getting a financial guarantee uh, from government. So, I, so the, 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 the question here is, and this is really boiling it down to, to what I stood up to ask you, which is what is the purpose to having a surviving, let's say a single surviving GSE, as a publicly held company, a shareholder-owned company, as opposed to an agency of the government? Well, so I can answer that from several perspectives. One, as an agency of the government, we would have to absorb $5 trillion onto the government's balance sheet overnight. We haven't done so. We haven't consolidated it. We've chosen not to. Um, conservatorship can't go forever. It is, even statutorily, intended to be temporary. At some point, you've got to consolidate it, and CBO has recognized that. So that's, that's part one. Part two is, um, in terms of the guarantee, uh, it should be private companies. I don't disagree with you about um, um, the reality that ultimately we may not need a guarantee. And behind the capital that I'm talking about and the public utility model that I'm talking about with uh, regulated rates of return, they're adequately capitalized that they don't need that guarantee. Uh, however, it brings us back once again to will they be underpricing because there's an implied government guarantee. So if you create a very, very narrow really cat guarantee that's behind substantial capital, capital that other than a 100-year flood would never be called on, and you charge them for it, you're getting around that issue of the implied government guarantee and really charging them uh, you know, a, a user fee. Um, not ideal, you're right. Um, at the same time, we haven't had the state utilities, the water, sewer, gas, electric utilities, um, dealing with the implied government guarantee as a basis for underfunding.
Absolutely. Uh, to come in fully in the way that it, it otherwise in an unimpeded market would. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, the decision was made after the Great Depression when a lot of people were forced out of their homes because they had five-year bullet mortgages and they couldn't refinance them, and they ended up uh, having to be foreclosed or liquidated, that we were going to create a more stable long-term market. Um, that's a much larger debate, and I'll tell you that there is absolutely no way that Washington will take it up, whether we agree that it's rational or not at this point. Um, right or wrong, the 30-year has become sort of a, a fixed part of our system, and I don't think that's going to be dislodged anytime soon. So we've got to work with what we have. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I know I can always count on Josh to stir up a little debate. Um, uh, let me also say, uh, to make my, sure my media people are happy, for those of you who are live tweeting, I'm sure that's probably every other person, our hashtag is Capital Unbound. So uh, anytime I see somebody looking down at their phones, I'm just going to tell myself, I know they're live tweeting the event rather than checking their email. Uh, <laughs> we are very fortunate to have deliver our uh, morning keynote uh, Commissioner Christina Carlo from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Uh, Chris was only just sworn in June of last year, so I'm delighted that he's kind of spending his anniversary with us, in a, in a sense, and I think it's been a very busy year. Uh, let me say in that year, he really has done an impressive job, in my opinion, of establishing himself as a very insightful voice uh, on a number of issues before the commission. Now, I'll give you the example of early into his tenure, he himself authored a 90-page white paper on the CFTC's swaps trading rules. Uh, and to put this in perspective, it's not even usual in Washington for commissioners of government agencies to write their own, like, two-page opinions at votes. So to write a 90-page paper as a, as a commissioner at a government agency is, is a bit unheard of and quite an accomplishment. Uh, and I know Chris put a, a tremendous amount of thought into it. Uh, prior to his service at CFTC, uh, he was executive vice president of the GFI group here in, here in New York. He also served as Executive Vice President and U.S. Legal Counsel of Phoenix Software and was a partner here in New York with Brown, Raisman, Milstein, Fudler, and Steiner. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Commissioner Christina Carlo uh, to the podium. Well, good morning, everyone, and it is indeed a great pleasure to be here. Uh, before I begin, let me say that my remarks reflect my own views and are not necessarily the views of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, my fellow CFTC commissioners, or of the CFTC staff. Thank you, Mark, and thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting me to speak today. It truly is an honor to address this esteemed organization that I have great admiration for. And it's also a pleasure to follow Josh Rosner and his insightful comments his book, along with Gretchen Morgenstern, Reckless Endangerment, is truly a must-read in the circumstances of the 2008 financial crisis, and I commend it to you. Let me also say that how excited I am to be speaking to you at the Waldorf. Uh, speaking of anniversaries, I believe the last time a Giancarlo gave a speech in this hotel was 26 years ago, this month, when my brother gave a toast at my wedding reception and welcomed my beautiful bride to the family. And although Charlie Giancarlo couldn't be with you today, Regina Giancarlo is here, and she's still my beautiful bride, so thank you. 
Some of you may know that uh, the Cato Institute was named after Cato's letters, essays first published from 1720 to 1723 under the pseudonym of Cato, who's commonly known as Cato the Younger, who lived in Rome from 95 to 46 BC and was an implacable foe of Julius Caesar and a stubborn champion of lowercase r Republican principles. Uh, Cato committed suicide rather than betray those principles. If he were alive today, whether he would commit suicide if he was aware of Republican uppercase principles or not, I don't know. (laughs) But in our lifetime, uh, the Cato Institute seeks to increase public appreciation for principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And it's the application of those principles to American capital markets and capital formation that we're here today to discuss. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of economic fact that everywhere in the world today where there are free and competitive markets combined with free enterprise, personal choice, voluntary exchange, and legal protection of person and property, you will find the underpinnings of broad and sustained prosperity. Those elements lift millions out of poverty wherever and whenever they are deployed. Yet here at home, these same elements are under attack by critics of our financial markets. These critics constantly talk about separating markets from risk, as if they have no idea that risk and prosperity are invariably intertwined. Those critics say that risk can be extracted from the marketplace through centralized economic planning and direction. And they say income inequality can be reduced through increased political control over people's economic decisions. And they say that wealth redistribution should be tolerated by passing on to our children and our grandchildren additional trillions in national debt. Meanwhile, these critics of free markets hardly ever talk about regaining broad and durable prosperity. Yet prosperity was the common state of the American experience for us and for generations before us. And Americans still want prosperity to be the default state for their children. What we have today is just not good enough. In fact, what we have today is simply the worst U.S. recovery from any recession since the Great Depression. Last year, the managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, dubbed current economic conditions as the new mediocre. That's actually a mild description for the state we're in. We learned last Friday that the U.S. economy actually shrunk by 0.07% between January and March of this year. In fact, for the past half dozen years, U.S. gross domestic product has grown at the slowest rate of growth since the U.S. began compiling reliable economic statistics a century ago. The official U.S. unemployment rate has fallen steadily during the past few years. Yet this recovery has created the fewest jobs relative to the previous employment peak of any prior recovery. The labor force participation rate is at a 36-year low of 62.5%. The number of Americans not in the labor force is at a record high of 93.7 million. 
One in three Americans between the age of 18 and 31 are living with their parents. And in one out of every five families, no one has a job. The plight of our middle class continues to deteriorate. Real disposable personal income is well below projected levels, and prospects for full-time jobs have diminished. Meanwhile, income inequality has grown as the number of Americans in poverty has soared to about 50 million, the highest level since the 1960s. The current explosion of federal regulations is a major drag on the U.S. economy. Regulations now cost the U.S. more than 12% of GDP, or $2 trillion annually. The, annual, the average manufacturing firm spends almost $20,000 per employee per year on complying with federal regulations. And for manufacturers with less than 50 employees, that number is $35,000 per employee. As a former business executive, I can tell you that such an ex expensive regulatory burden is a big reason why the rate of hiring is so meager. In a recent major survey of CEOs of American companies, overregulation was overwhelmingly cited as a barrier to capital investment that would otherwise stimulate job creation. Still, Americans remain an aspirational people, despite the economic frustrations of the times we live in. I agree with Governor Jack Markell of Delaware, who recently wrote that Americans need jobs, not populism. Americans want robust economic growth, not excuses based on bad winter weather. If we're to meet our obligations to the next generation of Americans, we must address head-on the challenges of this new mediocre and take steps to replace it with broad-based prosperity and job creation. The answer, as I think most of you, if not all of you know, lies in economic freedom and opportunity, the same combination of ingredients that invariably leads to more prosperity, even for the poor, than does centralized political economic planning. As you know, capital markets such as the stock and bond markets play an essential role in marshalling resources and deploying them in productive ways. They serve as the link between savers and investors by shifting financial resources from surplus to deficit, sorry, from surplus and waste to deficit and production. They allow the rational allocation of resources driving the expansion, expansion of manufacturing and industry. Moreover, adequate trading liquidity is the lifeblood of good financial markets. Liquidity is the degree to which a financial instrument may be easily bought or sold with minimal price disturbance by ready and willing buyers and sellers. The U.S. has long enjoyed some of the world's deepest and most liquid financial markets for trading U.S. Treasury and other debt, equity, and derivative securities. The health of the U.S. economy is strongly tied to deep trading liquidity. It's essential for overseas investors to remain willing to trade in our markets. If U.S. trading markets become shallower or less liquid, overseas investors will reduce activities in U.S. markets, imperiling U.S. economic health. Let's look for a moment at the role of markets in my field, derivatives, including swaps and futures. 
Some of you know how the derivative markets work, but I think a basic example would be useful to to, uh, level set us for the rest of my remarks. And let's start with your local grocery store. We take for granted the abundance of food on the shelves week in, week out, and the relatively stable prices of those groceries on the shelves. We never have to wonder how the weather is affecting the growing season or if it was a good or bad harvest in Kansas or California or New Mexico. Yet visitors to America from the developing world are amazed at the constant bounty of food on our shelves at relatively stable prices. In many parts of the world, plentiful food depends on a good harvest. A bad harvest means there's nothing to eat. With little or no income from a bad harvest, the farmers won't be able to plant again next year, prolonging the misery tied to weather conditions. But here in, the, in America, in the developed world, the use of risk hedging instruments, namely commodity futures, swaps, and other derivatives, is one of the key reasons why we find plenty of food on our shelves week in, week out. Many of our agricultural producers hedge their prices and costs of production in the futures and swaps markets. But such markets are not just beneficial for farmers. They impact the price and availability of food, the warmth of our homes, the energy used in our factories, the interest on our home mortgages, and the returns on our retirement savings. Well-functioning derivative markets allow the risks of variable production costs, like raw materials, energy, foreign currency, interest rates, to be transferred from those who cannot afford them to those who can. Derivatives free up capital and boost economic growth, job creation, and prosperity. Now, it's true that derivatives like any other engineered device ever known to mankind, serve both useful as well as harmful purposes. And I concur with the thrust of Josh Rosner's book that the 2008 financial crisis arose from an inferno of complex derivative products used for unfettered risk-taking overseen by feckless regulators amidst the government's deliberate degrading of mortgage lending standards and the creation of a housing and credit bubble. Yet I also agree with scholar Peter Wallison that the combination of complex derivatives, bank leverage, and unwitting regulators all by themselves would not have caused the financial crisis. No, it required the federal government's active encouragement of banks and other financial institutions to originate and hold enormous and opaque amounts of non-traditional subprime and alt-A mortgage obligations to further the social goal of home ownership. When home values began to fall and lenders anticipated non-payment of these toxic mortgages, it triggered a crisis of confidence in the creditworthiness of counterparties in the securitized mortgage and credit markets and the bursting of a double bubble of housing prices and consumer credit. It led to a full run on the bank with rapidly falling asset values, preventing U.S. and foreign lenders from meeting their cash obligations. The result was a financial crisis that was devastating for far too many American businesses and families. Yet seven years down the road, the standard press and political narrative is that the financial crisis was primarily about the deregulation of banks and banks engaged in excessive trading leverage through derivatives. The role of toxic mortgages has been almost, but not entirely, forgotten. 
Arising from that incomplete narrative of the financial crisis, many new financial sector regulations are disproportionately focused on capital adequacy of banks and financial institutions without corresponding attention to housing market reform. Most of these new regulations have the effect of reducing the ability of medium and large financial institutions to deploy capital in trading markets. Many of these new rules were cobbled together under the U.S. Dodd-Frank and Europe's EMIR and MIFID regulations, the Basel III Accords, and regulations by other overseas authorities. Many of these reforms have ostensible and varied merit, and each has a supporting constituency. Yet almost all of the rules to be, continue to be put up by U.S. and overseas regulators in an uncoordinated and ad hoc fashion with hardly any cost-benefit analysis about their impact on global trading markets with potentially dire consequences. The CFTC's contribution to this liquidity-depleting mixture includes flawed swaps trading rules, of which I have written extensively, as Marx noted, double charging of margin on certain types of derivative trades used to manage risks, strict limits or position limits on risk management of energy and commodities, and the immensely complicated Volcker rule of which no other jurisdiction on earth has sought to emulate. Yet the Dodd-Frank Act is only one set of leaks in this pool of global trading liquidity. Other new rules dictated by U.S. and European central bankers and bank regulators that have no experience in trading markets are tying up billions in capital on the books of global financial institutions. They seek to control borrowing and leverage. They prioritize capital reserves over investment capital, balance sheet surplus over market making, and systemic safety over investment opportunity. They include regulatory-imposed margin payments on uncleared swaps, enhanced central clearinghouse recovery procedures, capital retention and leverage reduction requirements under the Basel III Accords, and other rigid leverage ratios and edicts from loosely organized global shadow regulators like the Swiss-based Financial Stability Board. And then there is the financial transaction tax that's being sought by the Obama administration and a systemic risk fee that the Treasury's Office of Financial Research proposes to charge clearinghouse members. Worse, many of these rules are being cranked out piecemeal by various regulators in the U.S. and abroad with different standards, requirements, and implementation schedules. It's causing the clear fragmentation, the demonstrable fragmentation of global financial markets into smaller, disconnected liquidity pools that do not uh, efficiently interact with one another. Divided global markets are more brittle with shallower liquidity and more volatile pricing, posing a risk of failure in times of economic stress. In response to the deluge of capital-constraining regulations, major money-centered banks are today building up large balance sheet reserves instead of putting their capital to market, putting their capital to work in the markets. Large banks have dramatically reduced their inventories of treasury and corporate bonds and other financial instruments. It's estimated that in the $4.5 trillion bond market, banks today just hold just $50 billion of corporate bonds, 
compared to 300 billion before the financial crisis. This lack of bank inventory deprives markets of the shock absorber mechanism that bank broker dealers traditionally provide. Without it, it's much harder to execute, execute large trades without moving the market, causing greater price volatility. A recent report by the Treasury's Office of Financial Research notes that changes in financial market structures caused by this plethora of new regulations are reducing the willingness of some major market participants to smooth out volatility in global financial markets and is making the U.S. financial system more vulnerable to debilitating financial market shocks. Even Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen recently acknowledged concerns that market liquidity may deteriorate during stress conditions due to the new regulations. Capital-constrained banks and other market makers have little choice but to limit their exposure to fragmenting and volatile markets, especially during times of financial turmoil. It's reached such a level that the IMF recently issued a report discussing the need for more, not less, economic risk-taking by banks. The report calls on banks to revamp their business models to once again become engines of growth. Yet the IMF fails to call out regulators for restricting the bank's ability to do just that. We need to look no further for a canary in the liquidity coal mine, if you allow me, than the events of October 15, 2014, when yields on U.S. Treasury instruments suddenly plunged by an enormous amount without any discernible reason. The mini-crisis revealed a fundamental imbalance in the ratio of liquidity provided to markets by these capital-constrained and risk-adverse large banks and the liquidity demanded from the markets by an expanding buy side of asset managers and hedge funds. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon called it a warning shot to the markets. I fear that the next time global financial markets experience a sharp stress or shock, and that time will come, the cumulative effect of all the various Dodd-Frank, European, and Basel III rules will be to drain the market of critically needed trading liquidity, liquidity that will be essential for short-term solvency for many ordinary, everyday American businesses. Regulators often claim that they're acting to avoid a repeat of the last crisis. Today, regulators may, may be laying the seeds of the next crisis, the disappearance of trading liquidity in capital markets. One veteran industry commentator has aptly noted that a market in which no one is willing to take a risk is a market that is very risky. Once again, flawed and ad hoc implementation of regulatory reform is increasing the systemic risk that the Dodd-Frank Act was premised on reducing. Fortunately, the Dodd-Frank Act created a new super regulator known as the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, that's charged to coordinate the hundreds of new rules and regulations. Unfortunately, FSOC has been an unmitigated disaster as a coordinator of regulatory reform. Rather than moderate the impact of liquidity-draining regulations, FSOC has filled its time with designating Wall Street banks and insurance companies as too big to fail, 
so that someday they can be regulated by, you guessed it, the Federal Reserve, and bailed out by, you guessed it, the American taxpayer. Interestingly, FSOC's just-issued annual report fully acknowledges that banks and broker-dealers are reducing their securities inventories and, in some cases, exiting markets. It then instructs individual market participants and regulators to monitor these developments, including how regulations impact the provision of market liquidity. Good grief! Monitoring how all these regulations impact the provision of market liquidity and could cause systemic risk is supposed to be FSOC's job. Just as it requires stress testing of its too-big-to-fail subject firms, FSOC should do some stress testing of its own. If U.S. markets are to remain the world's deepest and most liquid and continue to attract foreign capital, FSOC should do a thorough analysis of the full impact of this mass of liquidity-sapping regulations that it's supposed to be coordinating. One thing is certain. When a liquidity crisis hits, and it will, FSOC will be the first to point fingers, blame banks and other market participants, and then demand more control over them. FSOC may even use its new powers and taxpayer money to bail out more financial institutions. Remember, never let a good crisis go to waste. Despite all this, I believe American voters will expect the next administration, whether it's a Republican one or a Democrat one, to take steps to end the new mediocre. Americans want to return to traditional American middle-class prosperity. And that begins with efficient capital markets free of, an artificial, liqui- of artificial liquidity constraints emerging from a Pandora's box of competing and disjointed and disconnected and uncoordinated regulatory initiatives. FSOC must step up to its statutory duty. FSOC must monitor and analyze the hundreds of new federal and overseas regulations. It must measure the cumulative effect of these new regulations on trading liquidity and financial markets, possible systemic risk, and the mediocre American economy. In conclusion, let me return for a moment to your namesake, Cato, Cato the Younger. You may know that Cato also appears as a literary character in the second book of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, the timeless poem about the transition from the road to hell to the road to heaven. Cato stands on the border of the two and represents rebirth, renewal, and redemption. So, too, we participants and observers of capital markets are at a transition point. We've been through the inferno of the financial crisis. Though we're told we're on an upward path, we seem somewhat stuck in a blinding fog, obstructing a clear view of the right road ahead. Our fellow men and women are being buffeted by the impact of mediocre economic stewardship, ad hoc regulatory activity, and the failure of those whose duty it is to see through the haze. Yet I firmly believe that Americans will persevere in time to greater prosperity and economic freedom. And that's because, like Cato, Americans have always, and I pray will always, reject the false promise of government-provided safety, security, and a riskless future. Instead, Americans must hold fast to what made this nation exceptional, personal liberty, free markets, 
and the fruits of their own hard work and ingenuity. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to take some questions. Perhaps maybe you'd introduce yourself as well. Hi, Mayra Rodriguez-Vailar is a uh, Basel III uh, regulatory trainer and consultant. So given the vast difference in countries' legal systems, accounting systems, the nature of sophistication of their financial institutions, aren't we always going to have immense difficulty in having coordinated regulatory attempts, whether it be for bank capital or derivatives? Sure. That's, that's a great question. And I think there will always be some degree of, uh, of difference. There has to be. In fact, if, if you go back to following the, the financial crisis in 2009, the G20 leaders met in Pittsburgh um, and adopted a number of accords known as the Pittsburgh Accords. And they're actually um, uh, very good reading. They're, they're worthwhile reading. If you read them, the, uh, the G20 nations pledged to uh, regulatory reforms in the wake of the financial crisis. And yet throughout the document, they acknowledge again and again and again that while these reforms need to be imposed at the nation-state or at the EU, the, the, the regional level, they need to be done in a coordinated fashion. And the G20 leaders pledge to coordinating the regulatory reforms. That's where things have gone off the rails. The coordination just hasn't been there. And I'm sure you probably spend in your organization a lot of time trying to gain that coordination. We've had a lot of regulatory gamesmanship over the last few years. And, and um, I spoke uh, in the fall in Europe on behalf of my own agency, where I acknowledge mistakes made under the prior leadership of my agency, think, thinking that by going ahead of the Europeans, all everyone would follow in the U.S. wake. And it hasn't worked out that way. The coordination hasn't been there. And what's happened now, it's become really like opening Pandora's box. Regulators are going in all different directions, and the coordination's not there. And we, in, in Dodd-Frank, created an agency, FSOC, that's supposed to be doing this coordination role, and it's not doing it. And I think that is a, a, an absence of leadership, knowing that we need this type of coordination in global regulation. Uh, Chris Whalen from Kroll Bond Rating Agency. I was wondering if you could parse the difference between traditional multilateral traded derivatives and the over-the-counter uh, variant, which tend to be bilateral in nature, and which, at least in my view, contribute greatly to too big to fail. Uh, Washington has given these contracts superior status in law. What, why do you suppose that a bondholder of a bank or corporation should be subordinate to a swap counterparty? Just the, the last part of the question? Well, a, a swap contract is immune from the automatic stay in bankruptcy. They can run, and in fact, the regulators are trying to deal with this now through a new protocol that will essentially make them wait if a bank fails or a corporate fails. Um, I'm just wondering, why do you think that this is an em a, a, a model we should emulate and defend as free marketeers here in this room, since it seems that the over-the-counter bilateral model is deliberately inefficient? Uh, so, so we had a, a pretty sophisticated global market for over-the-counter uh, swaps uh, and other derivatives prior to the financial crisis. Um, it was one of the core regulatory reforms to try to move more of that 
into central clearing. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a mistake to believe that over-the-counter swaps were not centrally cleared. The large part of the IRS market was already a cleared market. The CDS market was moving toward clearing uh, at the time of the financial crisis. So it's a matter of degree. We're moving more into central clearing. But there still will remain a large part of the market that won't be able to be centrally cleared. Central clearing is not a panacea. Uh, central clearers themselves become... Uh, systemically vulnerable and potentially too big to fail as we move more central clearing. And I think anybody that's looked into central clearing has recognized that risk. And yet at the same time, clearing brings other benefits. What one would hope it would do is raise the bar on the quality of risk management. And at the end of the day, central clearer is not a credit enhancer, but it's a credit managing function. And so we would hope that would be the case. I think in terms of bankruptcy, there's a lot of complications in that. We have uh, a a, a federal system here in the United States. Europe doesn't have a comprehensive uh, uh, bankruptcy system, so that's going to be one of the areas where coordination is going to be critically important. Um, uh, Nevertheless, contracts, um, uh, I'm a great believer in freedom of contract. I don't think that moving things to a central clearer takes away from freedom of contract. I think in its best light it will help to sort of credit management, better credit management in that regard. Yes, please. Hi, David Malpass with NSEMA Global. Um, Could you talk a little about the intersection? I'm fishing a little. The intersection of three things going on. One is the size of the interest rate derivatives market, so it's huge uh, and needs a lot of liquidity, as you were discussing. Two is the uh, the LIBOR litigation and the foreign exchange litigation. Where, how far can that go? Could, isn't, aren't we at risk that it will last 10 years or 20 years as the European regulators come engage in that litigation? And then the third thing is negative interest rates in Europe. So can those three things function, or how, much, how worried are you about that market? Well, that, that's a lot, David. So uh, the interest rate... Um, Derivative market is circa four hundred um, uh, trillion dollars in size. I mean, it's a, as you as you know, enormous market. The entire derivative market is circa seven hundred trillion dollars in size, somewhere in that regard. Um, your second question was about the LIBOR. I, I want to be a little cautious here. Um, there's still ongoing investigations by my own agency, um, as 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 you say, with the Europeans as well. Um, uh, LIBOR is a tremendous uh, disappointment, I think, to many believers in free markets. Um, the um, behavior that went on there um, uh, is indefensible. Um, I have called for um, uh, uh, professionals in the swap brokerage industry to be subject to the same level of professional standards as are in other um, asset classes. Today, if you wish to trade a, um, an equity or a bond security, um, you would go to a registered broker-dealer, and at the broker-dealer, you would be engaged with a professional who has passed a Series 7 license uh, and examination. If you wish to trade a corn future on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, you would go to a registered introducing broker and interact with a professional who has passed a Series 3 exam. Uh, today, if you wish to trade a credit default swap, um, uh, 
you would go now to a license swap execution facility, but the personnel on that facility would not necessarily have passed any accreditation standards. So I've called for um, equalizing the professionalism for the swaps market to put it on a par as, the, as in asset, other asset classes. Um, uh, that I don't think that, that professionalism and that standard setting would have necessarily um, uh, caused the LIBOR scandal not to emerge, um, but um, uh, perhaps it might be able to make sure it doesn't happen in the, in the future. Um, uh, just if I could aside, you know, LIBOR is very interesting. One has to ask themselves, why is it that as Americans we price our home mortgages in LIBOR, which is the London interbank borrowing rate? Why is it not the New York or the Chicago, some other borrower? Why is it the London interbank borrowing rate? And the reason for that is because in the 1970s, Treasury regulations, Reg Q and other regulations, put a limit on the amount of interest that American banks could pay on dollar deposits of foreign depositors, which caused those depositors to deposit their money not in New York or in the United States, but in London. And out of it grew the enormous euro-dollar market and that enormous market, and it was the overnight lending of those overseas banks that resulted in the LIBOR rate becoming the benchmark standard for so many financial instruments. So once again, the U.S., and, and it's not just limited U.S., but once again, regulation, overbroad regulation, caused the development of a movement of a market offshore that took with it jobs and prosperity that would have otherwise inured to the benefit of Americans. And we always need to be, keep that in mind as we look at regulations. But that's an aside. The London interbank borrowing rate, the scandal that came out of that, is a tremendous blot, I think, on the, um, uh, on, on the marketplace, and it's very unfortunate. And then um, uh, your last qu- question on European recovery. Uh, I, I'm very concerned about uh, lack of economic growth, not just in the United States, as I noted in my remarks, but in Europe as well. Um, we're in a tussle right now with the Europeans over something known as equivalence, the question of whether European regulators are going to deem U.S. clearinghouses to be equivalent to European regulatory standards, and if they don't, they won't recognize them as suitable for use by European investors. If European investors do, do use them, they will have to pay a much higher rate uh, 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 in terms of costs. That, that dispute with the Europeans is part of this lack of coordination that's been going on right now, and if it's not resolved, could be devastating. And as I pointed out in Geneva in, last September, when I spoke to a European audience, I said, look, if, you, if we get this wrong, this will be bad for the United States. It will be even worse for Europe. Europe's got a major growth problem. And the last thing it can do is shut its markets to U.S. capital. You know, for the last 30, 40 years, we've all seen tremendous rising living standards because of the emergence of a global market in financial services. Nothing in the financial crisis or Dodd-Frank said we should bring an end to a global market and financial services. But in fact, because of faulty implementation, that's exactly what we're doing. We're balkanizing financial markets into regional and national marketplaces, making it harder and harder for for, uh, cross-trade in financial products. We're building regulatory regimes in Europe and the United States that effectively don't talk to each other. It's like two software protocols that don't speak to each other. And we're going to break global financial trade into balkanized marketplaces. That's not helpful. One more. In the back. Hi, uh, Gene Phillips from PF2 Securities. Uh, We do a lot of uh, financial products uh, market analysis, and um, 
from our perspective, there have been a lot of uh, positive developments from the CFTC, um, and they're commendable, so thank you very much, uh, specifically in the, um, in the spoofing in uh, commodities markets. Um, so that's been great. Um, I also share your enthusiasm for uh, the way that financial derivatives can help the underlying markets. Um, I wonder if there's, uh, there's a potential for, um, uh, for the CFTC to, to be a little bit more specific about what they're seeing in, in other markets um, in which derivatives are actually affecting the underlying uh, rather than uh, helping hedges. Uh, they're, they're really being driven by speculators. And I think we're, we're seeing um, a, a little bit of opacity as to what's happening in the commodities markets where uh, financial derivatives are being traded uh, many, many times the number of the uh, actual physical market that's out there. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, maybe why we should be a little bit more enthusiastic about what the uh, CFTC is doing about that? I, I'd be happy, happy to do that. I'm actually tremendously proud um, of the CFTC, and I must say it's been a great honor to have uh, celebrated my first, have spent the first year at the agency and to see the quality of the work, the quality of the personnel, the quality of the thinking. And while I may be a, a critic of government policy on a number of areas, I'm not a critic of the hardworking men and we, women that, that work at uh, the CFTC as well as many federal agencies. And I think the CFTC in the last year has done some very good work in um, um, moderating perhaps some of the um, um, uh, less well, some of the rushed regulatory efforts that had gone in, in, uh, previously. Um, and I think it's done some very good work on looking at markets for the role of market participants. So now let me turn to the, the issue you raised, though, speculation. Markets need speculation. Speculation is not an illegal or an improper activity in markets. Without speculators, you would not have markets. And let me break it down to a very simple analogy. If a grain producer arrives at the market on Monday to sell grain, and there's no millers there to buy the grain, and the miller says, there's nobody to sell it to, I'm going home, the marketplace is not served. If on Tuesday the miller shows up to buy grain, and the, gro- and the grain producer is not there, and the miller goes home, no bread is produced, the market is not served. But if the grain producer shows up on Monday, and there's a speculator there willing to buy that grain in the hope that maybe on Tuesday a miller may show up, if not, maybe he'll show up on Wednesday, to buy that grain and hold it and take the risk, and to charge a premium because they're taking a risk. The market is served because maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday the, 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 the miller shows up and buys it. So markets need speculators. Markets won't work without speculators. The issue is manipulation. Manipulation is clearly prohibited activity, and that is a big part of the regulator's job to police the market for manipulation. And manipulation can be done by any market participant, speculator or otherwise. So there's a difference between speculation and and manipulation. It's manipulation that has to be monitored in markets. So with that, I know my time is up. I thank you very much for your time today. Well, uh, thank you, Commissioner uh, Giancarlo. That was very inspiring. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and uh, be back in here uh, at 1120. So grab some coffee, hit the restroom, whatever you need to do. Check your email now.